Hi, my name is Sana Siddiqui from the Respiratory Structure and Function Assembly of the ATS. We are presenting the second podcast of the series on how migration affects research careers. Today we have our guest, Dr. Jeanette Burgess. She's a Rosalind Franklin Fellow, originally from Australia, who recently moved to the Netherlands. Hi, Jeanette. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, and I'm really pleased to be talking to you. Yeah, thank you for making time um, to take this podcast with us. So um, uh, why don't we get started? And my first question for you is, can you tell me about the position you presently have, your academic position presently? So um, as you said in your introduction, I hold a Rosalind Franklin Fellowship, which is co-funded by the University of Groningen and the European Union. Um, it's a five-year fellowship, of which I'm into the I've been here three and a half years, and um, as part of that fellowship track, I've been um, given a, a tenured position at the University Medical Centre of Groningen, so I now am a professor of extracellular matrix in disease pathogenesis. So at what point of your academic career did you realise that this was a possibility, or did you know that this is where you wanted a position such as this? earlier on? Was it during um, the PhD phase or the postdoc phase? So, I mean, I, I always knew that I wanted to continue um, in the medical research arena. And I guess sort of late PhD, early postdoc, I had the desire to think about leaving my own research group. So then how, how did the position come about? Like, did you specifically apply for it or um, did your mentor have an influence in suggesting, you know, which direction to possibly consider for you? Uh, so mentors have been very important in my career development. I've had, I've been very lucky to have strong female mentors who've guided me through my career development. Started out with Judy Black in Sydney, Australia, who really introduced me to the lung field and inspired my desire to lead a research group in this arena. And she really gave me the um, the ability to think outside the box, to believe in myself and to strive for things. And when she retired, I was really set to follow in her footsteps in the research arena in Australia. But I also had some other international mentors who inspired me to think further outside the box and look at other opportunities. And one of those people suggested that there was an opportunity to apply for this fellowship at a time when I was looking for a new challenge. And that's how I ended up here. So that's pretty exciting. And in terms of, you know, how common is it when you look at like the colleagues that you had in Australia at the time for them to take on positions such as this? I'm assuming it was a competitive application process. How long was the, first of all, how common do you find it is for people to leave at the stage that you did? Not necessarily at the postdoc level, but after that. And then secondly, you know, what kind of considerations did you have to make when deciding, yes, I can move in terms of your, whether it's family or other considerations that you had uh, on a personal level? Okay, those are pretty big questions. Um, to tackle the first one, how common is it? Probably not very common. I mean, at the stage I was at, I had started to establish a research group. I had students. Um, so 
I guess most people are starting to put down roots and really set up their networks in their location. I was, I didn't know I was looking for a new challenge, but it turns out I was, and I was really at a stage where I was looking for resources and interactions that I was struggling to access where I was, um, and that was just a pure set of circumstances or um, just the way things had worked out. And this opportunity arose and it just sort of seemed too good to say no. Um, when it was first posed to me, I immediately said no, I mean, that's not something I'm going to think about. But just over time when I continued to just toss around ideas, it, it suddenly became not too daunting and not too big a, an idea. And I was very lucky to have strong support on the personal level, so my husband, um, whom we talked about the pros and cons of staying or going. Um, in Australia, I didn't have the opportunity of a, a permanent tenured position. I was on continuous competitive fellowships every four or five years, which is an uncomfortable way to be um, establishing a career, particularly when you have a family to support. And so those were important things to think about and the opportunity of coming to Groningen on this fellowship was the I the goal of this fellowship program is that if you are successful, then you are integrated into the tenure system. And that was very attractive for me. And things that I then had to weigh up as to whether we decided to come or not were, I mean, all my professional commitments, my teaching commitments, my students in Australia, but also I had a family and I had to consider moving them, going to a country where English is not the first language, um, how were my children going to be educated, and all sorts of things. So it was a sort of heart-wrenching thought process to go through um, and quite challenging and actually made me sort of stop and assess where I was in my career and what I wanted from it. Um, and lots of pros and cons lists were written and eventually we decided that the pros were far outweighed the cons and so we made the move. Yeah, so those are pretty um, intense thoughts <laughs> um, yeah. going in. So thanks for sharing that with us. So um, from the start of the time that you started considering this application and you know putting it forth um, to the time that you heard back, um, to the time you actually moved, what was that time frame? Was it like a year or was it like six months to a year? Um, so the actual... Uh, application process was quite a short application process from what I'm accustomed to in terms of fellowship application. So I think I had to start putting paperwork in in October and they called for interviews in December and then I found out the outcome in sort of February, March and then there was various negotiations in terms of contracts and things and we actually, I mean, we made the move quite a rapid process because we wanted to match the academic year for getting our children into schooling. So we moved late July, early August. So then um, you talked about your teaching responsibilities and your students back in Australia. So um, do you sort of still maintain, obviously the network continues, but then do you still maintain those responsibilities to an extent? Do you have to go back to Australia from time to time or were you able to wrap it up um, before coming for at least the, you know, um, for the immediate few years? Um, so I was fortunate that the, my students were at the stages of their um, studies that we could um, finalise documentation, so PhD theses and things, 
long distance. So, you know, Skype's wonderful. We've had a lot of Skype discussions and lots of email exchanges. I had one student who was still very active in um, her research project, but she had a, a very strong co-supervisor who I work very closely with and still work closely with. And so she moved into his laboratory and we had weekly Skype meetings to continue the continuity of the project. So that's actually, you know, that worked out really well in that case. And But in the case the students weren't as advanced, would you still have had to mentor them from afar? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think the fabulous thing about most PhD programs these days in that students have to have more than one promoter or more than one supervisor means that if one supervisor moves away, they're not completely left in the lurch. But yes, I mean, right. I would have had to actively mentor them from afar um, and, you know, lots of uh, time challenges are moving to the other side of the world, but you make it work. You have early morning calls or late evening calls and email yeah. and um, Skype make those sort of things feasible these days. Right. So if, if you were to do the move again, what would you advise other people who are considering an international move or across the world? Don't underestimate how much time it takes to pack up where you are and to then set up at the other end. I, mean, I, I thought I'd allowed a lot of time and I tried to put things in place such that everything would flow but it, it was a big rush at the end to finalise the packing up of the office and everything. And I, what I didn't appreciate was how long it would take to integrate into the new location. And that's one thing that I've been a little bit frustrated about and that's my personality because I want everything to be going instantaneously. But just it takes time for colleagues who you've worked with or collaborated with internationally and you've met at many conferences just for them to get to know you on the ground and start integrating you into running projects and come to you to invite you to be a collaborative partner in terms of grant applications and things. I underestimated how much time that would take. And then what about the setup of the lab? Like was that already set up partly for you or is that part of what you're talking of in terms of um, you know um, settling your roots um, professionally? It, did, did the setup of the lab take about six months or did you come into a lab space that had you know, a lot of equipment that you may need? Um, the, you're right, the collaborations can take some time. Um, but what about like the physical setting? Um, so I was very fortunate in that the setup here at the University Hospital where I am now located is that we work in collaborative laboratories. So I joined a, a couple of other PIs in an already running laboratory. Um, there were technical people who were employed within that team who were able to sort of start running experiments for me and getting things going. So I didn't really have any downtime in terms of actually having to set up a lab, but I did have downtime in terms of recruiting students into my new program here in the Netherlands. And um, so, so that's a very interesting point you raised. Now, is that um, just because in general it is hard to recruit graduate students or is it um, because, you know, it was sort of a relatively new lab at the university, um, so getting the word out was perhaps more difficult than if you were there a lot longer? Um, so do you think it's a, um, a combination of the two or is it just that it's part of knowing how the ropes work you know, at the university? Um, I think it's all of those. 
So obviously yeah. local students need to know who you are, so you need to be in front of them in terms of teaching programs for them to be able to realise that you have a research program that they might be interested in participating in. Um, and also the funding structure is such that you need to have funds to be able to recruit students. So I obviously had to get into the funding system and bring in some funds to then be able to fund those student positions and just becoming familiar with the funding structure and how it works and where are the possibilities of applying for funding to run the different sorts of programs is all things that take time that you can look at from afar, but until you're actually in the location and understand the nuances of it, it's difficult. Right. So, um, um, and in terms of the um, program of the graduate studies for these students compared to the Australian system, are there any striking differences or um, generally is it relatively similar in terms of length of time, um, the average length of time, or the style? Um, that they have set up in terms of how many people would be on the committee or how often they have to meet that committee. Um, is, is, it, is anything you know, strikingly different um, or is it generally what it would be like at any um, program? Um, so the biggest difference that I've noticed is that in Australia, PhDs are still students, so they um, don't have a, a salary. Uh, some of them have scholarships, uh, but a lot of them have an independent job that they work on on the side while they do their studies in the laboratory. In the Netherlands, um, almost all PhD positions are a salaried position, and that's the, the structural system here. And so you need to have money before you can go and look and recruit a student. In terms of the actual student program, I mean, that differs university to university, but the overall structure of having a research program with some um, educational units to teach about research ethics and managing time and all of those sorts of elements that are also important in developing a scientific career are very similar. Um, and the, the structure in terms of how much output needs to be produced before a thesis can be written is very similar. So another question um, I have for you is, so initially when you moved and you were sort of waiting for recruiting students, did you at any point actually have to do lab work yourself or was it more admin and then maybe writing um, with projects you were already involved with at the time? Um, I think the technical staff would have um, been a little bit shocked if I'd tried to do lab work because it's a number of years since I've actually been at a lab bench myself. Um, so no, it was more <laughs> administration. Um, I mean, part of my role here is a teaching role, so I was integrating myself into the various teaching programs, becoming very involved in master's teaching and master's research supervision. Um, so it was more administration and writing grants and all of those sorts of processes that PIs go through to attract money and attract students and guide students through the research programs. So um, coming to the cultural aspect of being in a different you know, in a different country. What about the funding situation? So you mentioned how you had to secure funding before you could hire students, but in terms of, you know, not being from there, were there certain funding opportunities you could not apply for because you were not a citizen or um, perhaps a resident at the time? Um, or how did that work? Um, so I've actually found the Netherlands funding opportunities very open. I have to say that's the opposite to Australia. Certainly if I had moved to Australia as a non-Australian citizen, 
there are lots of opportunities that I wouldn't have been able to apply for, but I haven't come across anything here that I've not been able to apply for because I'm not a Dutch citizen. This is a very open community, it's a very international community, and the funding sources that reflect that. Um, it was more a matter of working out the different layers of the funding scheme and which had to be collaborative grants or um, consortia grants and then working out who were, were appropriate partners to be consortia partners. Um, so I kind of started with the small local grants and then worked my way up into the national and I'm still working towards the European consortia. Right. So, so that yeah, so that's actually yeah, that's kind of interesting to hear. So, in terms of culture shock, so you did mention coming to a country where you know the first language is not English. So, how as a family are you guys adjusting in terms of, I mean, learning Dutch perhaps, or you know how important is uh, is that in just at least the academic life, whether it's for your children or for yourself? Because I'm assuming like small talk um, around you might be in Dutch. Um, so, or is it in English because a lot of science is still performed in English in a lot of countries regardless of the first languages. So how was that transition? So, I mean, professionally, English is the language that we use because we're an international institute. We have students from all over the world. So people actually like the fact that I have English as a first language because I can proofread lots of documents. Um, and my colleagues here are very fluent in English. I don't have any problem communicating with them on a professional level. Sometimes the administrative system is a little more challenging because a lot of that is in Dutch and so I have to um, eat humble pie and go and ask the secretary precisely what the document is asking <laughs> me to do. Yeah. Um, I find that, I mean, Groningen is a, a university town, a quarter of our population are students and everybody that I interact with, even if I try and use my very weak Dutch will respond to me in English because they see that my Dutch is not terribly good. Um, I would like to know more Dutch but because everybody uses English that's a limitation. Um, my children attend international schools so they're still being educated in English. We made the decision that it would be too challenging to put them immediately into the Dutch system for them and for us. Um, so they're still being educated in English but they, they have to learn Dutch as a, as a subject and we're trying to integrate them in local sporting teams that's all in Dutch and things as well. Um, I find that if we go further afield outside of the university towns then occasionally we come across somebody who cannot speak English but that's very infrequent in the Netherlands. So at the moment um, it's not a challenge in terms of the language apart from some of the administration processes and there's always someone who's happy to help. And do you guys drive on the same side of the road? No, you don't. Yes, that's something that we had to adjust to to drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I figured that might be a problem. <laughs> Um, awesome. Thank you so much. So uh, is there any parting words you'd like to leave with our audience in terms of any other advice you'd like to give or anything else you'd like to add on? Um, well, you asked me in the, the questions about the biggest cultural shock. I mean, you, you've addressed the language barrier, but the, um, the thing that it's not really shocking but kind of intriguing was the automatic assumption that I knew how to ride a bicycle and that I was comfortable and competent on a bicycle <laughs> the instant I arrived. 
because everybody rides a bicycle here. We have a, a lab day out once a year where the whole department goes out on an excursion. This seems to be a, a tradition in the the Netherlands that each department takes the whole department out for a fun sort of networking day. And quite often they'll do that by bicycle and we ride 10 kilometres or something. They just assume everybody yeah, can do it. Now, I adjusted to it completely, but when we have a, a lunchtime meeting and they serve lunch, it's very simple bread with a bit of cheese or meat and milk or buttermilk. Oh, well, that's great. Yes. It's great to be exposed to um, the different worlds and what, you know, what we all bring um, to the table, um, literally and otherwise. Um, so that's awesome. And um, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Burgess. That was very informative. And I, and I think it's actually very inspirational as well as a lot of people are making decisions to take on new challenges, as you said. And sometimes it's out of their comfort zone because it's a different environment. But that's the only way to grow. And um, we really appreciate your Absolutely. time. Absolutely. I mean, and the thing I've learned is that not to close off opportunities because it's not something that you've ever really thought about, but actually stop and think and right. see if there might be an opportunity within there for yourself. And also just right. to look outside your comfort zone because there are opportunities. Sometimes you, don't, you haven't really thought that there might be a possibility. Um, certainly I hadn't thought that I would end up in anywhere but Australia in terms of my career development, but I don't regret having made the move. This is a fabulous research environment that I've had the opportunity to join and I'm just doing so many exciting things that I wanted to do in Australia that I just didn't have the resources to do. Right, and yeah, and I think that's important. Um, and then also, as we move into different institutions, which is encouraged in our training, um, you know, we expand our networks and obviously our scientific knowledge in the process. So that's, that's really, um, yeah, that's great. Again, thank you for and your also, time. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, as you move around through different institutions, identify the mentors who are able to challenge you and make you ask the important questions of yourself um, and keep in contact with those people because they don't have to be in the next office to act as a good mentor. Yes, actually that's a very good point and I personally have experienced that. I'm experiencing that now as well. I do agree. I think that um, it's important to remember that it, you don't physically have to be in the same place um, to benefit from someone's mentoring if they're willing to put in that time. But I think that's very valuable to actually point out. So yeah, yep. thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think that's great. Thank you and good luck with all your research pursuits. And we'll see you at some Thank conference. you very much, Sarah, and I look forward to seeing you at ATS. Yes, we'll see you then. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.